Hello everyone, welcome back to Digisection. The following is a conversation with Malinka Welaliare, the founder and CEO of Akasa, the only unified automation company for healthcare cycle management. Prior to launching this company, Malinka served as the partner at Andresen Horowitz, where he helped to start the healthcare investment team. This episode is an amazing start of the second season of Digisection podcast. Yes, I'm thrilled to be back in our studio, and as always, I'm honored to host world-class healthcare founders. Let's do it. Malinka, it's a real pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much, Oscar. I'm thrilled to be here. I always love to start with the beginnings. So could you talk to us if you had any early inspirations that made you focus on healthcare and actually start solving problems in the healthcare industry? Sure. So I've always had an interest in biology and how we can use that at scale to help people. And in fact, uh, when I was in college, I was very interested in biotech and bioengineering. I did a lot of lab work around uh, bioengineering and genetic engineering. And it was really fascinating, like the power of working with, you know, human nature to edit things and ultimately have effect at scale and cure, develop treatments and, and cure patients, which was really fascinating to me. The challenge that I saw across my time was that the cycle times for biotech were very long, right? If you had an idea, if you had a hypothesis and you wanted to test it out and you wanted to see what the end result was, that would be, you know, weeks, if not months of, you know, you make some edit, right? Or you order some string of DNA that has some edit you care about. You get it, you grow it in some cells over some period of time. You then actually get out whatever enzyme or thing you're looking for. You then test if it actually has that effect. All of that is like multiple weeks. And then at the end of it, you might go, oh, whoops, it didn't work. I wonder if we should make this other change, right? And that's like a extremely long feedback loop, which is good and important. And there's very many important things to do using that approach. But I then started really getting into software where the feedback loop is so much faster, right? Let's say you want to test something out. You have an idea you want to test. You can literally write some code, execute it immediately, right? It immediately gives you an output of here's, here's what the output is, right? Which is so much faster. And then you can go, okay, great. That didn't work. Now I'm going to try this other thing, right? And the, the feedback loop and the cycle times are so much faster. And so I just got fascinated by that in software and then realized that healthcare technology was a way that I could combine my interest in, in software, biology, and healthcare to have impact broadly using where software was the wedge. And so that is some of my early inspiration for getting into the healthcare technology world. Okay. And is there any answer to the question, why now? Is there any specific thing about the timing of starting a CASA? What made you leave A16Z to start a new company? Very quick background to myself. So prior to starting a CASA, I was a partner at a venture capital firm called Andreessen Horowitz, also goes by A16Z. While I was there, I helped them start the healthcare investing team. That's now grown into a, a very large operation. I worked in about 20 investments, totaling about $250 million across tech-enabled providers, payers, biotech companies, healthcare technology companies. And what became very clear to me was that while there were really great entrepreneurs solving the front end of care, right, lots of care, solving lots of care-related problems, there were not the back end of hair was not very well served, right? And the fundamental blocker I saw to innovation was in that back end, right? Because at some point, and I saw this through many of our portfolio companies, they had to plug into that financial infrastructure of healthcare at some point, and it would be extraordinarily painful for them. And they kept running into the same issues over and over again. 
And then as I dug into that area more and understood it more deeply, mostly through our portfolio companies, it was shocking to me that there weren't first-class technology entrepreneurs really focusing their attention there. And so I realized there's an opportunity here to solve these problems at scale using modern machine learning approach. Because that's the other thing that's happened is that machine learning approaches have gotten sophisticated enough that problems that would have been impossible to solve, let's say a decade ago, are now possible to solve. And so all of that came together at the same time and made it blindingly obvious to me that this is an incredible way to bring in that next wave of innovation into healthcare. Mm -hmm. We're going to do a kind of deep dive into tech in just a moment from now, but let's just try to make a small step back. Do you have any ideal methods for identifying problems in healthcare? Tell us if you're using any frameworks and if there's anything specific that you started to use at A16Z and you're using it till now. Sure. So some interesting frameworks that I think entrepreneurs can think about is just really digging into the back end of any process and really understanding what like the things that are painful for everyone to do, but no one really thinks about solving them because they're super esoteric. Everyone sort of talks about it as being, you know, this is always the way it's been. If you hear that happening a lot, that is a clear signal to go dig into it and understand why it is like, it's something everyone has to do. It's not well understood. Everyone keeps saying the same thing that the way we do this is because it's been done this way forever, but it's still incredibly painful means that there's probably an opportunity for a really great team to go in and figure it out and solve it in a first-class way. An example of this is um, I like to think about Stripe, right? Most technology people are familiar with Stripe. I think it's probably the most valuable private company, private technology company in the world, right? $100 billion technology company as of their last fundraise. And what they do is online credit card processing, right? At a very basic level. And when they started, let's say, it was like 10 or 15 years ago, Everyone knew the problem of, you know, online credit card processing was immensely painful, but everyone went through the same pain and just did it. And then these folks, right, the Collison brothers decided, hey, you know what? This is a real problem. We're going to go solve this in a first class technology way and actually spend the time to understand the esoteric nuances of this. Right. And they dug in and ultimately they've built an incredibly valuable company that delivers. And the reason they're valuable as a company is because they deliver a very valuable service. Right. They take care of all this back end stuff that no one else really wants to think about. And there's lots of areas like that, you know, like as an average technology entrepreneur, you probably won't understand the intricacies. It turns out that there's actually a very, let's talk about revenue cycle, for example, right? There aren't that many people that actually deeply understand that domain. Even if you talk to a healthcare executive, if they're not in the revenue cycle area, they themselves don't fully understand it super well either. So it's a small set of folks that understand it. And even if you dig in and you understand that first layer, that's not sufficient to actually know what the real problems are. You do that, then you go another layer deeper, and then you kind of start understanding, and then you go yet another level deeper, and then you finally realize, okay, these are the actual problems, and these are how we solve them, right? And that is just an enormous amount of discipline and time and subject matter expertise to put together, and most people you know, don't do that, right? But if you have a team that is complementary, where you can bring together the best subject matter experts and best technology people together to both truly understand the problem, but also have the technical horsepower to solve it. That's a pretty beautiful thing. And, you know, we see lots of examples of that in the technology world. And that's, you know, truly what we're doing at Acaso. You've mentioned the term RCM, so revenue cycle management. Your product page says, I mean the product page of Acasa, connecting the dots of RCM. Tell us more. How do you change this process? RCM stands for revenue cycle management. The term that most people are familiar with is medical billing. The process of medical billing actually starts earlier than most people think and actually ends later than most people think. So it incorporates everything, uh, honestly, from even sometimes patient scheduling, 
right, to the act of transcribing, you know, a physician's notes into specific billing codes, actually billing the payer, and then making sure the payer pays appropriately. Now, that process theoretically sounds, I mean, maybe it doesn't even sound simple, but it doesn't seem like a lot, right? Actually, revenue cycle is not one gargantuan thing, especially at large health systems. It's 10 to 15 different discrete activities that happen one after the other. And so at a high level, here's how we think about automating revenue cycle. And, and you know, here's a sneak peek is what we've realized is that our automation platform is actually fairly generalizable and can be applied beyond the revenue cycle. So the revenue cycle truly is a wedge for us to get started solving an immediate and very critical pain point. But we do have plans and work to uh, underway to get into other administrative areas, which I can chat about later. But here's how we typically see this world, right? The legacy revenue cycle technology or the technology that health systems have been investing in for you know, 10, 15, 20 years are workflow tools that help make staff faster, right? So there's this layer that's been built of workflow tools, whether they are EHRs or bolt-on tools that they use to help the staff. But ultimately, all of it is to make staff a little bit faster at doing the work. So that's this workflow layer. Then there's a layer on top, which is all people, right? Because people still need to use these workflow tools to get the work done. And we are operating on that level, right? Because what we're saying is, because of the way some of this stuff has just evolved, we have really smart, talented people in Revenue Cycle working on things that computers can do. But for whatever reason, we have these people working on very monotonous, labor-intensive tasks that, frankly, they don't enjoy and in many cases can be error-prone, right? Because it's literally doing the same thing over and over again. It's very easy to make mistakes sometimes. And so what we're able to do is build machine learning and AI to duplicate that work and do that work autonomously. So to sit on top of the workflow layer and do that work, right? So sometimes people ask us, oh, does this mean that we spent all this money on the workflow tools? Are you replacing that? No, absolutely not. Like we have no intention of doing that. That's an entirely different type of company. What we want to do is help the health systems we work with make the most out of the investments they have already made in workflow tools. Now, instead of having to train staff a bunch to get the most out of those tools, we can train AI to use those tools at the best of their ability, right? And that is a far better experience for a customer. And there's a number of benefits and aspects to that that I'm happy to talk about, but let me pause here for a minute. Our listeners are going to be really super interested in how are you monetizing this kind of product offering. So could you walk us through your current business model and how do you see it evolving with time? Right now, when we work with a health system, there's many areas of the revenue cycle and other pieces that we can automate. And so when we go into them, we talk about, we explore together what are the areas of the revenue cycle that we can automate, right? And there's many areas and, you know, we do that. And as I mentioned, today we're starting with revenue cycle, but we're going into other areas as well. We can work with them on a a subscription or usage basis or some combination of the two. And so to the customer, it feels like your typical software solution they would work with because we don't want to innovate on the business model part, right? We want to innovate on the technology and fit into a model that they're familiar with. So nothing too crazy on the business model part, pretty standard sort of SaaS type software. Okay. And so, Malinka, is there any specific metric that your customers care about? What are you helping them to achieve, you know, getting down to KPI slash metric level? Yeah. So for any executive at a health system, there's, look, there's many metrics they care about regarding revenue cycle, right? But there's probably three big ones. One is the cost to collect. 
right? So as a percentage of their net patient revenue, which is the total revenue they bring in per year, also referred to as NPR, as a percentage of NPR, how much are they spending on revenue cycle? For a typical health system, they are spending 2 to 3%. These are large numbers, right? Let's say you're, you're Sutter Health, which is a customer of ours. They're a $10 billion NPR health system. They're spending very large amounts, right? So cost to collect is one metric. Two is AR days, which is after billing a payer, how long does it take them to get paid, right? Or consumable days. This is actually a term that's, I mean, pretty common outside of healthcare too, right? In, in healthcare, it's about 45 days is how long it takes to get paid after you bill a payer on average. And then the final one is just actual revenue that is collected or denial percentages, actually. Percentage of claims that result in denials, right? You want to obviously minimize those as much as possible and make sure they are, if there are denials, which there might be, like the payer might deny for actually correct reasons, like they're legitimate denials. Today, about 10% of all submitted claims from a provider to a payer get denied upon initial submission. It's unclear though, and about half of those should not have gotten denied, but they don't know which one that is. And so you know, trying to correct things up front to minimize denials is also a very key aspect. And what are your ideas on how to make healthcare a flawless experience also for patients? So I forget where I read this, but someone made a great analogy of the current healthcare experience. You know, what it would be like if a restaurant used healthcare payment mechanisms and what that would feel like, right? You go into the restaurant, you're not shown the menu, you're told what to buy, you are not told the prices of the things you're going to buy. And then you don't even get the bill at that point after you finish your meal. You get the bill like two months later after you've forgotten everything that happened, right? Like that is the equivalent if you were to try and say a restaurant tried to do that. That's insane, right? Like no consumer would stand for that. What we want to do is bring the consumer, the financial experience in healthcare, similar to what a consumer feels like with a financial experience, literally any other aspect of their lives. Now, to do that, you have to solve problems on the provider side and how they really work with payers, right? So in order to solve that well, we have to really dig into what are the things that are causing these problems in the first place. And a lot of it, honestly, are errors that could be avoided, right? Just human error. And that's why we want to use ML and machine learning to solve these things and have you know superhuman intelligence do it faster, right? Instead of like delays because people just are slammed and don't have work to get to, they can do that faster. So those are some of the ways we are working towards making this a great experience for everyone. And the other thing I want to bring up is patients will definitely benefit, but also many health system workers are also going to benefit, right? In many cases, nurses and physicians get involved, get pulled in to the revenue cycle area because of, you know, the complexities involved. And even many of the workers that are in revenue cycle could be reutilized on patient-facing activities. Like when a patient calls in with a question about their bill, like that could be actually answered by a person, right, to help them. But instead, these, you know, those same people are working on these root, like activities that a computer could do. And like fundamentally, we're just not allocating our resources appropriately to maximize the experience for both patients and providers. And we think using machine learning to take care of the things that people don't have to do, we can use the talent we have much, much more effectively. So it's always starting with high touch and then adding high tech. 
Akasa was also recently included in the breakout list, which features early-stage, high-growth companies that are particularly appealing to engineers and technical talent. Akasa's AI models have been trained on 250 million claims. That's really impressive. Tell us more about how do you use AI and ML, and if you could, it'll be great to talk about any of the recent papers you published. We have trained our ML models on very large set of claims, as you mentioned. There's a number of other data points as well, too, you know, workflows that we learn from our customers, things like that. The important thing to realize is there's a lot of healthcare enterprise is not copy and paste. Like you cannot copy and paste the same thing from one place to another. That's actually a very important thing that I think a lot of technology entrepreneurs don't realize. And I saw this when I was at A16Z. People vastly underestimated how much variance there is between health systems. You've probably heard the joke, right? You know, you've seen one epic instance, you've seen one epic instance because the other one is going to be very different, right? And I think what people do, there's two failure modes here. People don't or vastly underestimate how different the second thing is going to be and their product just doesn't work. They make it work at one place and then the moment they try to make it work at a second place, it's just like ends up being a completely different thing and they just like cannot work or they have to put in a ton of manual effort to make it work and at that point, it's now a consulting company, right? Which is fine, but it's, it's not a technology company that can scale quickly or deliver a really great experience every time. What we have done is, A, fully recognize the fact that there is quite a lot of configuration that needs to happen from customer A to customer B. And, and importantly, I use the word configuration, not customization, because we have built our core platform to be as generalizable as possible between customers. But we have also figured out what are the different bits that do need to be changed to adapt to another customer's workflow. And we've made it very fast for our team to configure it appropriately so that every customer gets a great experience and we can make that configuration very quickly. And we knew all of that ahead of time and we built our system in a way to accommodate for exactly that. That's one of the big traps I see a lot of technology entrepreneurs going into. And, you know, it's one that fortunately we've been able to overcome and build against. And so, by the way, is there any specific time window for uh, getting a full integration of the ACASA system? In terms of the actual time we need for technical work, it's about, you know, six to eight weeks to get everything configured for that customer. Um, however, that is assuming we have all the data and access that we need from a customer. And many health systems, they're just, especially the IT teams are, you know, their teams are fairly overwhelmed with all the different things they've got going on. And so that can take some time, right? So we obviously add buffer for how long it takes folks to get stuff to us. Now, we have made our system super easy to deploy, like minimize IT time as much as possible. Like for the most part, what we need, the most important things are just customer logins to their EHR systems. So it's the same process they would go through to hire a new employee and get them logins. That's mostly what we need. And we do need some other data files and things, but we've tried to minimize the IT lift as much as possible. That said, we still do add a meaningful buffer. Let's now talk about one of the most interesting parts of your system, at least for me. Um, tell us more about the mechanics behind data processing, for instance, um, claims. So maybe at a high level, from a medical claims processing perspective, let me just talk through that. So the claim, right, the bill that's sent from a hospital to an insurance company is called an 837. 
And then the remittance, right, what the payer sends back to the hospital saying, hey, we paid this, or hey, we didn't pay this because X, that's called an 835. And that's all of the, both of those are part of a set of transactions called EDI transactions. And there's other type of EDI transactions too. But let's talk, focus on the claims part. It's often confusing because, you know, <laughs> chronologically, you would expect the 835 to come before the 837. Like, you know, shouldn't that be the thing that goes out and 837 comes back? But no, it's actually the other way around which is whatever, some random anachronism. Okay, so that's typically how the claim processing part works. Now, the way we think about it is we are truly automating complex work that is happening, right? And so when we thought about how do we design a system that can automate really complex processes, we looked at other areas where really complex processes were being automated. So one area or industry we learned from is the self-driving car world. Driving a car, probably one of the most complex activities out there Lots of different parties, some who follow the rules, some who don't. And, you know, we're trying to automate this, right? And look, it's taken some time. And although there are now some early successes, like Neuro is actively delivering pizza in self-driving vehicles in a couple of cities. Google's made a lot of good progress. Cruise has, et cetera. And first, I'll talk about what they don't do, right? Here's what they don't do to build a self-driving car. What they don't do is have an army of people in a warehouse somewhere, writing rules, individual rules for how to drive every road in America, right? That's not what's happening. That would be insane. It would just be an insane number of rules to capture every potential scenario ever in driving. Like even as I'm saying it, you're probably going, of course not, that sounds insane. But that is actually the equivalent of a very old school technology in our world. It's called RPA, robotic process automation. If you tried to do it that way, that's what you'd have to do. But that doesn't work in complex areas like revenue cycle. Okay, here's what they actually do in self-driving cars or building self-driving cars. They first take a car and surround it with sensors. And then they have people drive those cars. And the sensors are capturing what the human sees and then what the human does in reaction to what they see. In essence, what they're doing is they're capturing the inputs and outputs of the driving experience, right? And once you capture a large enough data set, you can then have the ML itself figure out how to map those inputs to those outputs by itself. And in doing so, it's going to come up with significantly more complex, I'm not going to say rules because that's not precise, but I'll just say rules for now, a significantly more complex rule set for how to drive a car than a human trying to individually code that out. Right? So a very important concept here, right? It's not humans writing a bunch of if-then statements. It's an ML algorithm looking at a set of input and output data and itself coming up with how do I map the inputs to outputs and Essentially, that's how you train a self-driving car, or rather train a model, an ML model to drive a car by itself. Okay. And then once you have the ML model trained to some level of confidence or accuracy, you then actually let it run on a car, and then the car drives itself around. Now, another important concept that is commonly used in self-driving vehicle world is they also know that there's going to be lots of outliers and edge cases, right? For something as complex as driving, there's always going to be some outlier. And you have to manage for outliers because in that world, it's literally life and death that they do. So here's what they do. They often have these, what they call teleoperation centers, where they have a human in the loop, right? A remote person sitting at some command center somewhere that has visibility into the self-driving car, right? So the self-driving car is driving along and let's say it sees something it doesn't know about, right? It sees a couch on the road. It's never seen a couch before. It doesn't know what to do. It can send a signal to a human that's sitting in some remote command center somewhere. The human virtually takes control of that self-driving car, helps it drive around that obstacle, and then virtually jumps back out. And in doing so, two things have happened. Thing one is the car didn't crash, right? The car 
kept going, like it kept doing its thing. The second thing that happened is the AI in the car observed what the human did to handle that outlier. And now it knows how to deal with that type of outlier moving forward. So it's continuously learning and getting better and dealing with more outliers. And the reason I talk through this example is because it maps almost perfectly to how we developed our system, right? So instead of training AI to, you know, on a set of if-then statements, like if you see this, then do that, whatever, for revenue cycle, which is far too complex. There's so much variance that happened. There's so many different things that are happening in revenue cycle and so much change. Pairs are constantly changing what they're asking for, what they're doing, that we know that like pre-built rules are always going to break. They're going to break. It's going to lead to a bad customer experience. So what we do instead is we build our ML models by observing how humans, human billers, do the same work. We observe them doing the work, and in doing so, we build a data set of inputs, outputs, and similarly, we can build an ML model that's sort of a self-driving biller, right, if I may. And then once the model gets to a certain level of confidence, we then let it go do its thing and do the work autonomously. But we also have a human in the loop, right? So if our AI ever sees an outlier, something it's not familiar with, maybe a pair changed an auth requirement or something, right? Doesn't know what to do, immediately triages it to a human expert on our side who sees it, who then gets like x-ray vision into the brain of our AI and can say, okay, this is how you solve this type of outlier. And then now our AI knows how to solve for that type of outlier in a claim and can do that type of thing moving forward. So, you know, I hope you, thank you for the patience with the very long explanation, but that is how we have incorporated ML and humans in a super seamless way to solve the complexities of revenue cycle. And do you think that at some point we're going to be able to run a medical Turing test? Would that be possible? So, you know, the moment when a machine's ability to exhibit intelligent behavior will be equivalent to that of a human. I do think so. However, I think there is likely to be a need for a human in the loop, right? Because if you want to deliver a truly resilient experience that someone can always count on, you need to have a way for the AI to triage outliers. So that to a customer, whatever they're expecting always happens. Whether it is done by man or machine, it always happens. And it is up to the company providing that solution to figure out how they get as much done through AI and use the human expert as efficiently as possible. Mm -hmm. And so what's your final grand vision behind ICASA? Where do you see your company in the next, say, 10 to 15 years from now? So we've realized that the technology we're building, the automation technology that we're building is generalizable, right? Can be applied beyond revenue cycle. And so that's an active area of, and you know, we'll have more to talk about that in the future. But you know, at the heart of what we're doing, right, is we are building the, the future of healthcare with AI. We are envisioning a future where healthcare is far more efficient and ACASA is recognized as a driving force for removing excess costs and wasteful spending. And ultimately, we don't think there'll be any transaction on the back end of healthcare that ACASA isn't involved in in some way. <laughs> and this is more of a sort of facetious aspect, but I like to say that when you go to a healthcare conference, you often hear a lot of non-healthcare people presenting at them, right? You'll hear like someone from fintech or someone for the consumer world or whatever. And healthcare leaders always want to know, hey, how did those people in fintech do this, right? Or how do these people in whatever do this? You will never hear going to their conferences, anyone asking, hey, how did those people in healthcare solve this thing? Because unfortunately, we have for a while been catching up. I want in 10 years, right, to go to a whatever, let's say fintech conference and have how healthcare solved a problem to be the highlight topic for them, right? 
Because I think we have an incredible opportunity. Now, we have so much amazing talent coming to this space. And this is beyond Acasa, right? Like I saw this at A16Z as well. There's so much incredible technical talent that has such powerful motivations to solve healthcare, all coming into healthcare at the same time. And I think our infrastructure is finally getting to a place to support all of those people that I think the next decade is going to be one of the most incredible times for healthcare technology. And I think, like I said, in 10 years, we will have a fundamentally different healthcare experience to the point where other industries will want to learn from us, right? That's what we're building towards. Talking about the next 10 years, what kind of advice would you give to young entrepreneurs listening to our podcast or maybe even to your younger self? A very important aspect of building a company in a very in an esoteric space is thinking about balance, right? A very common thing that I saw when I was at A16Z, especially is you had teams that had really great technology people, but not many people with domain expertise, right? So, you know, a bunch of really great software engineers, but they didn't really understand the space and they would always run into a wall. Or you would have really great domain people who didn't really have any great technologists and they would, you know, probably do okay, but they wouldn't truly innovate. And so something that I really took in a heart as we built Akasa is really having a very balanced team, a team of complementary experts, as I think about it. And it's important to do that from very early on, because if you don't, the team just becomes imbalanced. It's very hard to start with, let's say, a lot of, you know, let's pick technology, a lot of technology talent, and then start bringing in, you know, domain expertise later, because those people will always feel like it's an uphill battle. And then the company just ends up biasing towards one of those sides. What I'm saying sounds like the most obvious thing in the world. (laughs) It's actually very hard to do because the founders often have a bias towards one side over the other. And so they're going to do the thing that's easiest to them, which is play into that bias and keep bringing folks like that. And so it's a painful and, well, not painful, but it should be a deliberate and time-consuming effort to keep that balance as you grow the company, because ultimately that will lead to far, far more success. Because what you'll be doing is really understanding the domain, solving real problems in the best technology way possible. So I would say that is a very important aspect of building a company. I just fully agree. You know, that's why I'm also telling my colleagues, other fellow physicians, to join and help tech companies as the market really needs this domain knowledge. So do you have any other learnings from your time at A16Z? You've already mentioned having a complete team, tackling the right problems, understanding the problems from the right angle. But is there anything else that could be a real game changer advice for other founders? Sure. Another thing that's very important for entrepreneurs is speed to making a decision. Some of you have probably heard Bezos' quote, I forget the exact quote, right? So I'm paraphrasing here. But you know, you want to make a decision when you have 70 or 80% of the information because getting the remaining 20% can take far too long. Now, I want to be clear, right? If you are working on anything clinical, you should obviously take all the time that is necessary and do all the necessary work because even a percentage of you know, doing something better is absolutely worth it. I'm talking about things which are more internal company decisions like working with X agency versus Y agency for, you know, let's say recruiting or something, right? There's going to be lots of things like that which are sort of internal operational decisions that you have to make. And it can be challenging because the people you turn to for advice can make good arguments for both sides. And it's very tempting to just wait and wait until you feel like one side is overwhelmingly, you know, in favor of one of the options. But my perspective on decisions like that is the waiting is the most harmful part. If there's good arguments for both sides, that probably means that both options are probably fine. And what's more important is just to make a decision and just do it fast, right? Like if you were faster and picked the option that was maybe 5% worse, but you just did it quickly, that would on a net basis be probably far better 
than if you took an additional two months and picked the option that was 5% better, right? So decision-making speed and knowing when you have enough information is actually a very important part of building an early stage company. Okay. And now it's time for the last, but probably also my favorite question. What our listeners should read, listen, or watch? Do you have any recent inspirations? Yeah. I mean, look, this is, it's a plug in, you know, the form I was at previously, but, but frankly, A16Z just puts out amazing content, right? Like they just across the board being really, really putting out great stuff. You know, fun enough, I contributed to some of that back in the day when I was there, but they have just significantly ramped it up and keep bringing in just world-class experts to talk through this. So they're obviously fantastic. But if your listeners are tech folks, they probably already, they probably knew some of that. I also like this podcast called Invest Like the Best. I think it's called Invest Like the Best. Uh, I can confirm it and ping you later. But also a really great podcast where you have this investor who has deep discussions with entrepreneurs and founders on what went into building their businesses. And it's really a fascinating podcast. So those are some of the ones that I think about in terms of reading there's a, you know, there's the legendary book. The two legendary books I think of are, one is High Output Management, great, great management book. The other one is Ben Horowitz's The Hard Thing About Hard Things, which again, probably relatively well known, but a great, great book there as well. And then this slightly newer one, Elard Gill's High Growth Handbook, also a very good read for a company that's scaling quickly. None of those books are narratives, like it's not a story, right? <laughs> it's like each chapter is dealing with a specific thing, like, you know, how do you think about hiring executives or you know, whatever, some other thing. And so it's not a story, right? You sort of read each chapter when it's most useful to you. But all of those books have been a very good ones. Malinka, thanks for joining the Section podcast today. Thanks so much, Oscar. I had a blast. Thank you again. Our producer is Michelle. Carol is our editor. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to Digisection from the Health Podcast Network.